everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the RecTech Pulse. Daphne Jackson here as your host. Today, I'm joined by a special guest, Julia Yansuda from the Global Financial Integrity Group. Hi, Julia. Hi, thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for being with us today. And let's kick right in. We're going to talk about trade-based money laundering today. But before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role with uh, GFI or the Global Financial Integrity Group? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the program director for Latin America and the Caribbean uh, at GFI. We're a Washington, D.C.-based think tank focused on illicit financial flows, money laundering, illicit trade, and other financial crimes. Um, so for my work, uh, I'm focused on research on financial crimes, uh, advocacy efforts, uh, largely focused around beneficial ownership, as well as technical assistance for governments. Um, right now, we have programming in Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Belize. And of course, we closely follow uh, developments in other countries in the region uh, as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Julia, for being here again. And so let's start talking about this report that you guys published not long ago, which is looking at international challenges of trade-based money laundering. Before we get into the report, tell us what you mean and what we mean about trade-based money laundering and what is the real scale of the problem worldwide? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I think there tends to be a lot of confusion around what trade-based money laundering or TBML actually is. Um, even among those of us who work on, on financial crime issues. Okay. So I think maybe let's start by, by what it is. Uh, and here I'm going to use the definition from the Financial Action Task Force or FATF. They define TBML as the process of disguising proceeds of crime and moving value through the use of trade transactions in an attempt to legitimize their illegal origins or finance illicit activities. So really we're talking about using trade transactions to move or launder illicit proceeds. There has to be a financial component for it to be TBML. Um, and then I think it's also important to talk about what TBML isn't. So TBML isn't smuggling drugs uh, in shipping containers, for example. Um, it isn't uh, contraband goods moving across borders without being declared. Um, TBML is really using quote-unquote legitimate trade transactions to move illicit proceeds or to launder illicit proceeds. So there has to be that financial component for it to be a case of, of TBML. And I think that, that that tends to generate a little bit of, of confusion. Right. Thank you for that. And so what is the real impact of TBML? Like how big is the problem globally? So that's one of the questions that we wanted to, to answer in this report. And um, unfortunately, you know, we, we don't know. There isn't great data about the, the scale of this problem. Um, we tried to estimate it. We looked at all of the known TBML cases worldwide from 2011 to 2021. Um, we used publicly available data. Um, we used, for example, um, government um, attorney general's office press releases. We used official court documents. We used a lot of publications by FATF and the FATF uh, regional bodies. Um, so we, we identified all of these different known um, publicly available TBML cases. Um, I think that that gave us uh, uh, a general sense. Um, we found about 100 cases. Um, I think initially we felt like that was a big number. It was certainly a lot of work to, to identify them all and map them all out. 
but after further thought, I think, you know, we came to the conclusion we're looking at sort of the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, we don't know the, the real scale. These are the cases that governments, um, you know, detected and, and went after. Um, but we don't know how many other cases, you know, they didn't detect. Um, to, to, to put this in perspective, you know, for, for these known TBML cases that we identified from 2011 to 2021, they amounted to around $60 billion uh, in money laundering. Um, that sounds like a big wow. number. However, um, in our 2021 report on trade-related illicit financial flows, um, you know, we found U.S. $1.6 trillion uh, in value gaps identified in trade between 134 developing countries and all their global trading partners. So I think our, our 60 billion figure for TBML, it, it might sound like a, a large number, but unfortunately, I think we're looking at the, the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, so definitely, I, I think it'll be interesting to see also with time, what else can you guys discover, right? Because it, it's a big problem. So Tell us a little bit about how did the report come about and who do you partner with and anything else that you can kind of tell us about that methodology behind the research? Yeah, absolutely. So we really wanted to have a better understanding of TBML from a global policy perspective. And I think it's important to say that there hasn't been a lot of research globally on, on TBML. Um, it's one of the top three financial crimes worldwide, according to, to the FATF. Um, but we don't know that much about it, and there hasn't been that much work done. Um, to better understand how this is, is functioning in different countries and different continents, we partnered with leading civil society research organizations. So we partnered with Fedas Arroyo in Colombia, ACODE in Uganda, and Transparency International Kenya uh, in Kenya. These are fantastic organizations. If they're not on your radar, I definitely recommend looking at their work. And so through this partnership, we were able to analyze TBML from a U.S., Latin American, and African um, policy perspective. Amazing. So with that said, can you tell us then what were the headlines of the report? What are those top three forms of TBML internationally? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the top headline for me is really that law enforcement is struggling to detect and combat TBML. Um, certainly, we identified 100 cases of TBML for that 10-year time period. They amounted to over $60 billion. That's, that's a big number. But uh, we don't think that that reflects the, the real amount of TBML that's, that's going on. If indeed, you know, according to, to FATF, this is one of the top three financial crimes globally. So I think uh, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg. Certainly, we see countries where law enforcement um, has detected cases where attorney general's offices are prosecuting cases. We also see countries where there is there are no TBML cases, and we don't think that's because there isn't TBML. We think it's because it's it's a struggle to, to really find and, and go after these cases. Um, you also mentioned, you know, what are the top methodologies or typologies that, that we're seeing? Um, they're pretty diverse. Um, in this report, for each of the cases we identified, we coded the, the different typologies being used. So we found cases of over and under invoicing of goods, uh, misrepresentation of goods being shipped, multiple invoicing of goods. Um, we found cases of phantom shipments. Certainly there are cases of the black market, peso exchange, and the use of informal value transfer systems. That said, so we see all of these different methodologies that, that are being used. The single most common 
methodology that's used is trade misinvoicing. And that was actually present in 63%, so the majority of the cases that we identified. When we talk about misinvoicing in, 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 in this type of transaction, what, what does that process look like? Yeah, so, so misinvoicing is the deliberate falsification of trade documents. Um, it could be by one or both of the parties involved in a, in a trade transaction. So we see cases where, um, you know, the exporter is misinvoicing or maybe the importer is misinvoicing. We also see cases where they are working together uh, to misinvoice. And misinvoicing is the, the falsification of certain key um, elements of a, of a trade transaction. Uh, it could be the, the price, um, you know, the quantity, quality, um, even it could be the, the country of origin of, of a product, right? So maybe um, if you have a product that comes from a country that is, is sanctioned, right? Um, we see cases where um, either the, the, the exporter or importer is falsifying the country of, of origin. What this allows um, exporters or importers to do is falsifying key elements of the trade transaction. It allows them to illicitly move value or, or money across international borders. Um, trade misinvoicing does not only occur in TBML. Um, trade misinvoicing is used for a lot of different reasons. Um, we see it being used in cases of tax evasion, um, money laundering, sanctions evasion. So it's, it's, a, it's a larger problem. But what our data in this, this report showed is that misinvoicing is a key element of trade-based money laundering. So I think that that's an important finding, uh, certainly. So you talked about partnering with Latin American and African organizations. So based on the research on these different regions, what were some of those obvious strengths that emerged from them, from the research? And then were there any difference between the the regions as well? I I look after Latin America and on, on my, you know, my regular job. So I, I, I can imagine some of those trends, but I'm kind of really interested to hear from you if there's any diff, like major difference between the findings in each region. Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. I think certainly TBML is a global problem. Um, I think we can say that it affects all countries to some degree or, or another. Um, however, there's certainly regional differences in how countries are responding to the problem, how they are sort of framing this, this issue. One of our takeaways from this report is that in Africa, trade-related illicit financial flows are largely seen as a tax issue. They're sort of seen as, as skimming resources off these economies. Uh, to take, for example, there's one campaign uh, in Africa called Stop the Bleed, right? So it's, it's seen as um, these economies are being bled dry uh, through illicit financial flows. It's very much um, a tax issue, um, and that's how governments are, are framing it. Uh, in Latin America, we see a very, very different context. Um, we see that the issue of trade-related illicit financial flows and TBML specifically, this is primarily framed as a counter-narcotics issue. And that's because there is such a long history of using TBML as a way to move and launder narcotics proceeds. Um, and in fact, you know, we see that heavily in this report. Some of the, the top countries that have TBML cases are the U.S., Colombia, and Mexico. 
So these are countries that have dealt with the counter-narcotics issue for, for decades. Awesome. So you also talked about one of those typologies in the report was the black market peso exchange. But can you go a little bit more in depth about this particular typology? What is it? Anything specific to any particular region? Really interested to hear more about that. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, maybe I'll start with one of the examples that we look at in this report. Uh, this is an example from 2019, so it's fairly recent. In 2019, U.S. authorities announced charges against a black market peso exchange network that they said was helping to move value from narcotic sales from the U.S. to Colombia, and they were doing so by exporting electronics. They would then sell the electronics in Colombia and use the sales to pay drug trafficking groups. So this is a great example, and it really shows a lot of the, the characteristics that we see commonly uh, in the black market peso exchange. First of all, the black market peso exchange is heavily associated with the Western Hemisphere, and it's heavily associated with narcotics proceeds. Just like we saw in the example, this is typically a methodology that's used to, to solve a problem, which is that um, drug trafficking groups have narcotics proceeds in dollars in the U.S., and they want to move them back to, say, Colombia or Mexico or another country where the narcotics um, originally come from. Um, the black market peso exchange is considered one of the most complex uh, TBML methods. Uh, it's hard for, for governments to detect. It's hard for um, the private sector to, to detect. So it's, it's really a, a major challenge. Um, essentially, it's used by criminal groups to solve the problem how to, how to move the proceeds of drug sales to drug producer countries. So they have dollars, um, and the question is, how do I move it back to the producer country and get it into pesos without being caught by, by authorities? So what happens is that currency exchangers, or sometimes called peso brokers, are used, and they help the drug trafficking organizations to repatriate um, these narcotics proceeds. So typically what will happen is that the, the peso brokers will purchase criminal proceeds in cash and in U.S. dollars from the traffickers, often at a reduced rate. For example, they might pay 90 cents for every dollar or they might charge a fee, right? So the, the, the peso brokers are in this for, for financial gain, obviously. Then clean funds are used to purchase legitimate goods, which can be exported to a country, uh, typically the, the source country of the narcotics. Um, then the criminals use the proceeds from the sale of these products, um, and they're able to pay um, the narcotics producers. One of the reasons that this is so complex and it's so difficult for law enforcement to detect is because no money is crossing international borders. Um, what is crossing international borders is a trade transaction that has value. Um, so in our, in our initial example, um, we have this 2019 case. They didn't send a wire transfer. They didn't move cash across international borders. Uh, what they did is they moved uh, electronic sales, um, an, an export of electronics um, from the United States to Colombia. And then by selling those electronics, they are paying the drug trafficking groups. Hopefully that helps to, to clear up a little bit what, what uh, the black market peso exchange is. 
Wow. It's fascinating to hear. It kind of sounds like a, like a TV show almost, right? Um, it's incredibly complicated. It's one of those things that I think to, to understand it, you almost have to draw it out, like make a, right. a diagram on <laughs> with pen on paper to, to fully understand it. Right. Totally. Totally. I mean, it really sounds like made out of Hollywood and, and you know, it, it's incredible to kind of hear the actual process and how clever people can really be to continue on this network of illicit funds. And and it's somewhat fascinating in the sense that the creativity and and the way that they do it and bypass so many laws and stuff, it's it's kind of scary, actually. But it it, it absolutely is. And I think it's a real challenge for law enforcement, as well as for uh, financial institutions and other private sector actors. I mean, the challenge is how do you stay one step ahead of this sort of behavior, which is so complex and, and so creative. And um, it's it's a major challenge. Yeah, totally. And so you talked now about, it was a shipment, right? In this particular case, it was a shipment yep. of electronics from one country to another. There is an implication in supply chain in this. And we, we talked a little bit about another podcast and, and as a reoccurring theme, it's the supply chain. So how does TVML affect supply chain in, in the long run? Yeah, I think... Um, a lot of times when we talk about supply chain issues, we're sort of euphemistically talking about the, the point of origin for that product. So in the case of mining um, and, say, illegal mining, we're talking about the, the point of origin. You know, was, was the gold or was the, I don't know, you know, precious metal, was it illegally produced? Um, when we talk about timber and supply chains, we're really talking about, you know, did the logging occur illegally? Um, but TBML and, and the focus on TBML makes us think about other parts of the supply chain. Um, we really have to shift our focus and we have to consider what's happening uh, in the ports and what's happening in terms of export and import of, of goods. Um, I think the, the challenging thing about TBML is that any product can be used. Um, all of these cases involve licit products so we're talking about totally legal merchandise. We're talking about things like um, electronics, cars, gold. Uh, we have one case that we found um, that had been covered by the, by the FATF um, of trade-based money laundering using potatoes. So um, any, you know, any merchandise can be used uh, in TBML. It's not the merchandise itself that is illegal or illicit. It's the way that value is being illicitly shifted across international borders by falsifying and manipulating trade documents. So that's a big challenge in terms of supply chain. Um, We're not just talking about the point of origin of this product or whether the logging was illegal or or legal. Um, You know, we're not just talking about finding narcotics in shipping containers. Now we have to consider any products could be used in TBML. And what is illicit about this is not the product itself, but the financial side of this transaction. And that requires totally um, a different lens uh, and different sort of skill sets to be able to detect and, and address that problem. Absolutely. With that said, and you know, I know that during the making of the report, you looked across 10 years worth of cases and did the researchers, did you guys notice any changes in TBML all the time? Can it help us predict then how will TBML evolve into the future? I know it's a hard question, but I'm wondering if there's any trends that kind of tell us 
where to look next because as you said it's a very complex subject and so if we can help financial institutions or anybody involved in the trade transaction that will be fantastic but i know it's hard so but i'm i'm wondering I think, I mean, this is a fantastic question. This is where we want to go next in terms of our research is how is TBML evolving and where is it going next? Unfortunately, the cases that we analyzed, so they're from 2011 to 2021, and they don't necessarily allow us to make those sort of conclusions or see those those sorts of trends. I think one of the, the big challenges is that it's it's taking government so long to build these cases that, you know, to, to give you an example, you know, a case from that's announced in 2021, um, those governments may have started to investigate that case five years earlier. Uh, these are massive cases. They're incredibly complex. Um, on average, these cases are involving three different jurisdictions. So you can imagine the challenges for law enforcement in terms of pulling together all that data, investigating this. Um, all of that is to say that there is a lag uh, in when the case actually occurs and when we're we're learning about it. Um, so unfortunately, you know, to know how TBML, even how TBML is operating today, say in you know April of of 2023, um, we don't yet know that because it will probably take governments years to build those cases and then for us to, to find out about right. those, those cases through, through publicly available documents. Um, but I think this is where we want to go next with our research. Uh, we're just trying to figure out the best way to, to go about it. Uh, it is a, a massive challenge. I will say, and, and this is maybe more of a, a hypothesis at this point than a, than a proven fact, but I will say some of the black market peso exchange cases that we saw were from several years ago. I have not seen a lot of very, very recent cases. And that may be because this methodology might be phasing out. Again, that's a hypothesis. We'll have to, to wait and see. At the same time, we are seeing in current data the continued use of trade misinvoicing. Um, so I'm pretty confident in saying that trade misinvoicing continues to be a problem in 2023 and will likely, you know, beyond that, uh, even into the future, remain a, a problem. Well, that's good to know. I'm really keen to, to see where the research goes next and what other trends you guys discover in terms of predicting, you know, where it's going, right? So, Julia, I'm conscious of time. And before we wrap up, can you tell us now on the positive side, any good examples of the best practices of good practices that are already happening international to mitigate some of the effects of TBML? And can you give our audience some recommendations or advice to mitigate and to put these processes in place to prevent or mitigate TBML? Yeah, absolutely. So what we found is that TBML is quite diverse. There are a number of methodologies, but the single most common methodology used is trade misinvoicing. So in terms of best practices, it's key to focus on addressing trade misinvoicing. And there are ways to do that. Um, certainly there are technologies that enable um, the screening of in, uh, specific trade transactions to see if pricing is within sort of normal ranges for, for that product, that um, export country and that import country. That's certainly a, a best practice. 
Um, for financial institutions, it's very important to be alert to trade misinvoicing, to have mechanisms in place to detect um, anomalous pricing behavior in, in a transaction, as well as to detect other red flags. Uh, FATF put out a wonderful report uh, in 2021 on risk factors for trade misinvoicing and trade-based money laundering. So that's definitely an important resource. In terms of governments, uh, governments should have mechanisms in place as well to, to detect trade misinvoicing. Um, there are ways that they can screen uh, transactions. Um, certainly another best practice for governments would be to talk to other partner governments um, to have that uh, international cooperation piece. There's something called trade transparency units or TTUs, um, which the US has set up with um, specific um, other countries around the world. Um, certainly a lot of Latin American countries are part of the, the TTUs. And what this enables the US and other countries to do is exchange trade data. So for example, if I'm Colombia um, and I'm exporting, to put a simple example, $100 of, of gold, um, is there a way to make sure that the US is also receiving $100 of, of Colombian gold? Or is there a way to detect via that information exchange if there may be discrepancies in the value or weight or types of products? Um, hypothetically, if, if Colombia is exporting $100 worth of gold to the US, the US should also be importing $100 worth of gold from Colombia. So it should all sort of square up. Um, and um, having that information exchange piece allows governments to detect when there may be these discrepancies that frankly can be very dangerous and can enable trade-based money laundering and other sorts of financial crimes. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Julia. It's been a pleasure talking with you and thank you for sharing your knowledge and the findings of the research with, uh, with me and the audience. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, once again, for listening to this week's episode. Stay tuned for more great content around financial crime compliance. Be safe out there. Bye.